0: As you're taking your seats, if you would, please take a copy of God's Word and turn to Isaiah chapter 15 and 16. You heard that right, Isaiah 15 and 16. Before you say, is he preaching on two whole chapters? Notice it's fewer total verses than Isaiah 14 from last week, 23 verses 32. But in all seriousness, today when biblical literacy is in decline in almost every corner of the world, We need more Bible, not less. So one more comment. Almost every place name we'll read here is in Moab, Israel's neighboring country to the east, southeast. It's okay if you don't know anything else about their locations as we read those names. All right, with that, let's hear now God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. An oracle concerning Moab. Because R of Moab is laid waste in a night, Moab is undone. Because Ker of Moab is laid waste in a night, Moab is undone. He has gone up to the temple and to Dibon, to the high places to weep, over Nebo and over Madiba, Moab wails. On every head is baldness, every beard is shorn. In the streets they wear sackcloth, and on the housetops and in the squares, everyone wails and melts in tears. Heshbon and Elielah cry out. Their voice is heard as far as Jahaz. Therefore, the armed men of Moab cry aloud. His soul trembles. My heart cries out for Moab. Her fugitives flee to Zoar, to Eglath Shalishia, for at the ascent of Luhith, they go up weeping. On the road to Horoneum, they raise a cry of destruction. The waters of Nimrim are a desolation. The grass is withered, the vegetation fails, the greenery is no more. Therefore the abundance they have gained in what they have laid up they carry away over the brook of the willows. For a cry has gone around the land of Moab, her wailing reaches to Eglon; her wailing reaches to Bear Elim, for the waters of Dibon are full of blood, for I will bring upon Dibon even more a lion for those of Moab who escape, for the remnant of the land. Send the lamb to the ruler of the land, from Selah by way of the desert to the mount of the daughter of Zion. Like fleeing birds, like a scattered nest, so are the daughters of Moab at the fords of the Arnon. Give counsel, grant justice, make your shade like night at the height of noon. Shelter the outcasts, do not reveal the fugitive. Let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you. Be a shelter to them from the destroyer. When the oppressor is no more and destruction has ceased and he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the the land, then a throne will be established in steadfast love and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. We have heard of the pride of Moab, how proud he is, of his arrogance, his pride and his insolence, in his idle boasting, he is not right. Therefore, let Moab wail for Moab, let everyone wail, mourn utterly stricken for the raisin cakes of Ker-Heresheth, for the fields of Heshman languish in the vine of Sibma. The lords of the nations have struck down its branches, which reached to Jazer and strayed to the desert. Its shoots spread abroad and passed over the sea. Therefore, I weep with the weeping of Jazer for the vine of Sibma. I drench you with my tears, O Heshman and Elielah. For over your summer fruit and your harvest, the shout has ceased, and joy and gladness are taken away from the fruitful field. And in the vineyard, no songs are sung, no cheers are raised. No treader treads out wine in the presses. I have put an end to the shouting. Therefore, my inner parts moan like a lyre for Moab, in my inmost self for Ker-Heresheth. And when Moab presents himself, when he wearies himself on the high place, When he comes to his sanctuary to pray, he will not prevail. This is the word that the Lord spoke concerning Moab in the past. But now the Lord has spoken, saying, in three years, like the years of a hired worker, the glory of Moab will be brought into contempt in spite of all his great multitude. And those who remain will be very few and feeble. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. Let's pray as we ask his blessings to bless his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're good and gracious, and we are grateful to be your people. And Father, as your people, we need your light so that we might see light, so that we might see truth. Show us our sin, but show us our great Savior in this hour. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you do when your neighbor's house is on fire? Do you run to help, to pull them out, to call 911, to let them spend the night or or whatever? Do you ask yourself whether you can afford to help? Whether the extra groceries are going to exceed your budget or something like that? If that second set of questions sounds kind of callous and uncaring, I'd say good. But if we're honest, We've all probably asked similar questions at some point in a crisis. Well, sure, I want to help, but but who's going to help me? As if the God who knows what we need before we ask is going to let us go broke as we lend a helping hand. Nonetheless, all of those questions might have been running through Israel's mind as they heard this oracle concerning Moab, their neighbor to the east, the southeast. Moab's house was on fire. Literally, maybe some of them were because an Assyrian army was rampaging through Moab, sending her people running in every direction. And it seems that some of those Moabite refugees landed on Israel's doorstep. Should Israel help? Would they? And who would be Israel's help and hope? Because you know, Israel had her own problems. They, too, were scared of Assyria, who had already pillaged the northern kingdom of Israel, beginning the sad exile out of their homeland. Israel needed help. Israel's neighbor, whose house was on fire, needed more help. Could Israel's God be enough help for both of them? Let's take a look and see our first point this morning. God's enemies will one day be weeping, wailing and wasted. Yes, weeping, wailing and wasted. The easiest way to say it is this is chapter 15 as well as the end of chapter 16. Is Moab God's enemy and why? Moab was a people founded by sexual immorality, incest specifically as the story of Lot would explain. Later, they were a thorn in Israel's side, a temptation that drew Israel into sexual immorality and idolatry. Numbers 25 spells that one out. And all that it was not simply a sin against Israel or against some individuals, it was a sin against God, who had commanded Israel to be faithful in marriage just as their loving God was faithful to them. Again, it's a sin against God. You think in Psalm 51.3, after his sin with Bathsheba, David says to God, Against you and you only, or maybe better, against you first and foremost have I sinned. See, if God is the creator and ruler of the universe, then there are no victimless crimes. Every sin is cosmic treason against the creator. But you you might say for the immediate moment, Moab is more God's enemy because of their sin, but not necessarily an overt enemy to Israel, God's people. You see, Israel and Moab were both afraid of Assyria, the big bad guy in the region, 715 B.C. As we said last week, in 715 B.C., several nations had chosen to rebel against the Assyrians, their overlords in the area moab was one of the ones that rebelled and now isaiah says here's what's going to happen to you and i think you can break this down in three subpoints. the first one 1a would be weeping wailing and wasted chapter 15. the second one 1b pride before famine chapter 16 verses 6 through 11. 1c glory's expiration date the final three verses that we read I noticed a similarity between, I'd say, the first nine verses and the final nine verses today. So I thought it'd be better to cover them together and then focus on some noteworthy verses in the middle. So back to the text. Point 1a, weeping, wailing, and wasted. Chapter 15, those are harsh words. Why do you use those in your outline? Well, you see, some form of the verbs weep, wail, cry, in most of verses one through nine of chapter 15, except for verse six, which talks about happy things like withered grass and desolation in the waters, except for verse seven, which mentions refugees fleeing with their possessions in hand, except for verse nine, which mentions waters full of blood and lions mauling the escapees. Except for verse 1, which mentions these two cities being laid waste, being undone. Let's read that. Chapter 15, verse 1, an oracle concerning Moab, because of because Ar of Moab is laid waste in a night, Moab is undone. Because Ker of Moab is laid waste in a night, Moab is undone. Undone. Same word as Isaiah. 6.5, 6 5, when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. Some translations say, but it's the same word Woe is me, I am undone. Undone, laid waste, cut off. I'm a dead man. All of those get the point across. And that's how Moab should feel. Their years of evil have brought this on judgment at the hands of God, courtesy of the Assyrians. People are running. This way and that. One commentator says these string of Moabite cities, you know all those names that you glossed over, it's okay. All those string of cities, there, there's actually no orderly progression here. One is in the north, one is in the south, one is in the middle. It's, it's scattered. It is as if, quote, a great cry goes up everywhere, filling the land from end to end. They're wailing because they know there's no hope. And yet, interestingly, they are not the only ones crying. The prophet, God's mouthpiece, says this in verse 5, My heart cries out for Moab. Her fugitives flee to Zoar, to Eglath, Shalishia. for at the ascent of Luhith they go up weeping. On the road to Horonaim, they raise a cry of destruction. But again, how does it start out? My heart cries out for Moab. As someone says, we see God executing judgment with tears in his eyes. The holy God weeps because he must punish sin, but he does it anyway because he must. Because he's holy. And then if we skip ahead to chapter 16, we see why God must, why he must. We see Moab's sin. Or Point 1b, pride before famine. You see this in verses 6 through 11 of chapter 16. Look at chapter 16, verse 6 with me. We have heard of the pride of Moab, how proud he is of his arrogance, his pride, and his insolence. In his idle boasting, he is not right. Pride before the fall, but in this case, the fall is a famine. Mourn for the raisin cakes, it says in verse Seven, because they're passing away. So are the other fruits of the vine. Verses eight and nine. For the fields of Heshbon languish, and the vine of Sibmah, the lords of the nations, have struck down its branches, which reached to Jazer and strayed to the desert. Its shoots spread abroad and passed over the sea. Therefore, I weep with the weeping of Jazer. For the vine of Sibmah, I drench you with my tears. O Heshbon and Eliela, for over your summer fruit and your harvest the shout has ceased. And then verse 10 says, there is no more joy or gladness because the wine, the vine is gone. And then verse 11, you see God seeming to mourn once again. Moab was prideful. How exactly were they prideful? How did it manifest itself? Maybe it was their prodigious output of wine or other agricultural products which were going away soon. Maybe that's what gave them such pride. I think that's less important for us than knowing this. You can be prideful about almost anything. Hit me one day when I was in seminary, I told my friend Brad, you know, if I get some advanced degree, I might become prideful. But nothing is stopping me from being prideful right now. Knowledge puffs up, yes, but despising book learning in favor of common sense can be just as bad of an idol, sometimes leading you to ignore the plain implications of scripture. We all have creeds, we all have theological conclusions, we all have world views. It's just that some are more upfront than others about what their assumptions are, their assumptions, their conclusions, the implications of what they say. You see don't despise more knowledge and learning as if that alone will keep you humble instead love the lord with your whole mind and pray that he would keep your whole heart humble at the same time moab's pride particular kind of pride yes but moab's pride is what eventually led to her famine of wine and other goods and And Moab's clock was ticking, it says here. That's our 3rd subpoint. sub-point, 1C, glory's expiration date. Glory's expiration date, chapter 16, verses 12 to 14. This is the thematic summary and conclusion of this chapter, really these two chapters. You see, sometimes God's judgment is written in ink, not pencil, by the time he announces it. Look with me at chapter 16, verse 12. And when Moab presents himself, when he wearies himself on the high place, when he comes to his sanctuary to pray, he will not prevail. This doesn't mean no Moabite could repent. It means their judgment as a nation was sealed. War was coming. Destruction was coming. And soon, verse 14, But now the Lord has spoken, saying, In three years, like the years of a hired worker, the glory of Moab will be brought into contempt in spite of all his great multitude. And those who remain will be very few and feeble. Why three years? Well, Moab revolted against Assyria in 715 B.C. And the revolt lasted for three years, historians say. Then Moab got wiped out. They were undone. As chapter 15, verse 1 says, They were weeping wailing and wasted, laid waste. So what should God's people think about all of that? About one of God's enemies receiving God's judgment for their pride, for their other sins. First, we should realize that the prideful and the mighty, those who are full of wine, full of wealth, they won't prosper in the end. Don't hit your wagon to Moab or to the latest mighty man or nation who promises you something. Your ultimate hope is in God, no matter how bleak your circumstances are, no matter how bright and shiny somebody else looks. Second, we need to realize this is just another average day in the history books. Wars and rumors of war have been with us for a long time, especially since Jesus walked on this earth. And I'll also say, have the last two years felt downright apocalyptic at times someone said that to me last week after the sermon I would say yes at times they have but God is not surprised by any of this in this in one sense is not unusual even if it's more compressed war famine social political unrest read the Old Testament and tell me if any of that sounds unusual if I could say it this way, metaphorically now, one of your neighbor's houses is always on fire. You should not be surprised by that. We should not despair over that. You should be ready to do what we can and not feel bad, not unduly so, if we can't do more. In any given time, one of God's enemies may be weeping, wailing, or wasted, in part or in full. What should we do? Well, that leads to our second point. God's people shall be a shelter for the sojourner. God's people shall be a shelter for the sojourner. We're covering a fewer number of verses now, just chapter 16, verse 1 through 4. I said the word shall, but if you look at the passage, it might feel more like a should. Chapter 16, verse 3. Give counsel, grant justice, make your shade like night at the height of noon, shelter the outcasts, do not reveal the fugitive. Verse 4, let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you, be a shelter to them from the destroyer. What's going on here? Well, remember, Moab's house is on fire. Ruthless Assyria has invaded, so Moab's running around in a frenzy, carrying her valuable possessions with her. Chapter 15, verse 7 says, And as chapter 15 ends, not much has changed. Chapter 16, verse 1 says, "'Send the Lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah by way of the desert to the mount of the daughter of Zion.'" God is telling them, as it were, to send a tribute or gift to Israel so that Israel will receive her neighbors kindly because, again, things have not improved for Moab. Chapter 16, verse 2, "'Like fleeing birds.'" like a scattered nest so are the daughters of moab at the fords of the arnon no home no nest no place to return and now the speaker appears to address someone else as i say that remember These oracles against foreign nations, this section of Isaiah that we're in, they were not necessarily meant for foreign ears. The other nations may never have heard them. They were meant for the ears of God's people so that they would know that God was sovereign over these foreign nations, especially the ones who were harassing them and oppressing them. And also, they were meant so that Israel could know how else they ought to live during all of this. And so we're back where we started. Verses 3 and 4. Give counsel, grant justice, make your shade like night at the height of noon. Shelter the outcast; do not reveal the fugitive. Let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you. Be a shelter to them from the destroyer. Regarding that phrase, make your shade like night at the height of noon. The net Bible helpfully translates it this way. Provide shade in the middle of the day. When the sun is hot, when it's brutal in the Middle East. Derek Kidner says this passage, it still calls God's people to use, quote, our minds, counsel, our conscience, justice, and our resources, shelter for the needy. The needy in this passage, they are particularly needy, uniquely needy, right? They are losing health and home. Is a hostile power invades and, and they have to flee elsewhere for safety? The needy here are called sojourners or resident aliens, new residents of another place. They're fugitives fleeing for their lives. They're outcasts, cast out of their homes. And God says, give them shelter. He says to his people, give them shelter. Do what you can for your neighbors whose houses are on fire. Now, one word it doesn't use in the ESV to describe these Moabites is refugee. But if the shoe fits, Merriam-Webster says a refugee is one that flees, especially a person who flees to a foreign country or power to escape danger or persecution. It's a side note, where would the church be now if one of God's people had not chosen to show mercy to a certain Moabite refugee and sojourner many years before, if Boaz had never showed kindness to Ruth, if King David's great-grandfather had never married King David's great-grandmother. It's also, I think, hard to read this about refugees, sojourners, and not think about the current situation in Afghanistan. Happened to read an article this week about Afghan refugees Christianity Today. And first, it referenced another article by a high-ranking Homeland Security official of the previous presidential administration who said this, in general, refugees are among the most thoroughly vetted categories of immigrants admitted to the United States. And then, this Christianity Today article, it went on to say, the refugees moving into your community will not be there to terrorize you or replace you. They will instead be looking for the chance to start a new life without their sons murdered or their daughters raped by bloodthirsty despots. In that way, they will be like countless others who have found refuge here in the United States. You can see many of them at the 4th of July parade in your town. They are often the ones waving the biggest American flags and weeping with patriotic joy. Some of these refugees are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Some will be your future brothers and sisters in Christ. let me clarify this article did not specifically reference Isaiah 15 and 16. I think it could have. Also wanna say there are differences, big ones, between eighth century BC Israel and 21st century America. But if we are God's people, living in any century, living in any country, then we should be ready to shelter the outcasts, the sojourners in our midst, the needy, the outcasts, the ones who are not born on third base. Now, maybe you'll never get that chance. Maybe your next new neighbor will not be an Afghan refugee. That's fine as well. But as Kidner said, be ready to use your mind, counsel. Your conscience, justice. Your resources, shelter for the needy. If you want to help the needy in our midst, there's a few things you can do. Pick up a copy of When Helping Hurts. It's a great book that we've studied in adult Sunday school before. Or you can pester our deacons until they find a way that you can help. Lovingly pester them, of course. And don't feel bad if you can't fix all the problems in the world. You're not called to fix everything in the world. You're not called to fix everything everywhere. One book calls this the rule of relational proximity. I help my family before I help others. I help the needy in my city before I help the needy in another city. I may not be able to do something today about human trafficking in Asia if, if for one example. But if I'm a Christian, I can't not care about human trafficking in Asia. It should, at the very least, make me weep with compassion and make me want to help how I can, where I can. Maybe a helpful verse for us, Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Care, always. Compassion in action if you can if you're able as you have opportunity Jesus said at one point we will always have the poor with us and therefore we will always have an opportunity to show whether we are merciful whether we see ourselves as debtors to mercy alone God's people shall be a shelter for the sojourner we see that here for the needy as we have opportunity especially for the household of faith And what if, what if you might wonder, what if we pour ourselves out? What if we wear ourselves out for the sake of others? Well, that leads to our third and final point this morning. God's king shall reign in steadfast love and faithfulness. God's king shall reign in steadfast love and faithfulness. Just two verses, verses four and five of chapter 16. And you might notice, middle of verse four, God sort of pivots. He pivots from Israel's call. God is calling them to help the needy. And now he pivots and he addresses a worry that they might have had. In verse 4, he starts by saying, be a shelter to them from the destroyer. The destroyer seems to be the Assyrian army as a whole. They were running roughshod over the country of Moab. And then we see them again in verse 4, the destroyer. It says, when the oppressor is no more. And destruction has ceased, and he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the land. Verse 5, then a throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness, in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. Think of the setting, the scene. Right now, there's an oppressor, a destroyer on the loose. So right now, God says, help. Help. However you can, be a shelter for the needy. And one day, he says, one day the oppressor will be gone. One day the white knight will come. Just when you think he's forgotten all about you, you will see the return of the king and it'll be more glorious than anything Tolkien has ever written. Then a throne will be established in steadfast love. Steadfast love, two English words. It's one Hebrew word. Hesed, not just love, but steadfast love. Covenant loyalty is the idea here. The love that will not let me go. It won't let Israel go because God will not let Israel go. His covenant promises have not expired. God will not forget. He cannot lie and he cannot fail. The king, it says, he will sit in the tent of David. David is interesting character david messed up in his life yes david repented all things considered david was a good king the best one that israel ever had before the exile and at the end of his reign david's soldiers said this not how could you have messed up with bathsheba and your kids that were a mess no no here's how they remember him 2nd samuel 21 17 you shall no longer go out with us to battle lest you quench." the lamp of Israel. In in other words, you can't die because then our light, our hope will be snuffed out. That's what they thought of when they thought of David. (coughs) Excuse me. And so when Isaiah promises that this Davidic king will come again, when he says that in Isaiah 16, he is telling Israel the glory days are coming back and then some. Moab's glory was fading, chapter 16, verse 14, but Israel's was returning. They would have to walk through exile and back to find it, but it was coming back. Moab, in the meantime, was seeking Israel's shelter here in 715 BC because their pride, their glory had failed them. Their source of security had failed them, but God says one day there will be an even better refuge in Judah. Or in Zion. As we said just last week, chapter 14, verse 32, the Lord has founded Zion, God's people, God's throne, and in her the afflicted of his people find refuge. Again, Zion does not simply represent a city, a nickname for Jerusalem in ancient Israel. It represented God's throne. We're a good king, an ideal king. We'll soon reign. And one day, it won't simply be Moab, who comes to God's people for help. As Isaiah has been saying all along, Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, it says, all the nations shall come in. Come to God's city, because God's city will be ruled by God's ideal king who reflects God's character. These words here, steadfast love and faithfulness that are mentioned The beginning of chapter 16, verse 5, they're probably an allusion to Exodus 34, 6, a foundational passage about the character of God. This is right after the golden calf incident when Moses and Israel and everyone are wondering if God will still be with them or not. And God appears to Moses and he says, verse 6 of chapter 34, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love and faithfulness, abounding in it. Moab's house was on fire, so they fled. As I said earlier, Israel needed help, but Israel's neighbor, whose house was on fire, needed more help. Could Israel's God be enough help for both of them, the God who abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. Could he? Well, he would be for now. And when the oppressor was no more, oh, when that day would come. Israel, Moab, they, they, they would live to see another day. When the oppressor is no more, God would be enough then as well. Years later, a descendant of David arose through miraculous means to inherit David's throne, Jesus of Nazareth. He was merciful. He was gracious. He abounded in steadfast love and faithfulness. He loved his neighbor. He loved God his Father. He was faithful to fulfill God's promise to his people, suffering for their sin, promising to end their sorrow. And then he left with the promise that he would come again. And so God's people now are in a similar position to God's people back then in Isaiah's day. We await the end of oppression and destruction. We await one who will reign like David, only better. We await one who will be swift to bring justice, to conquer all of his and all of our enemies. And in the meantime, sometimes it feels like our neighbor's house is on fire. Sometimes it feels like our own house is on fire. But God's word to us now is the same as it was to Israel back then. Help your neighbor as you have opportunity. And as for you, my people, who might be weary, worried, think that I've forgotten you, help is on the way. Let us pray. God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, would you show us once again that you are the same God yesterday, today, and forever. You have not changed. All of your holiness remains true. All of your might and your power that can swoop into a seemingly hopeless situation and deliver your people no matter the odds, no matter the enemy, no matter the circumstances. Oh God, show yourself to be that God to us today. Rise in our hearts. Fill us with hope, your hope. Help us to cling to your promises. We ask all this in the name of your Son, our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.